Welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with me is a woman who might drive you to drink, but she'll at least drive you home, too, so you don't end up in the papers. It's Lydia. <laughs> I know where my priorities are. <laughs> How's it going, Christopher? It is going well. Thanks for joining me. It's awesome to talk to you again. As always. Uh, before we start, I want to first thank everyone for tuning in and for anyone who hasn't already let you know that you can listen and subscribe to this show by visiting Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Spotify. And I encourage you to please rate and review us at any of those outlets if it's permitted. You can also just uh, search for us in any podcast up of your choice and I'm pretty sure that we're going to pop up. We have a Facebook group. Just go to Facebook.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. Uh, please join there and join in any, well, I won't say there's a lot of discussions, but every now <laughs> and again something sparks up. There isn't a whole lot to talk about you know, with the, the films and stuff that we cover, but you never know. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search for Orphan Entertainment, and there you can watch many of the films we've covered here on the podcast, and uh, you'll and you'll get a little heads up as to what film we're going to be discussing next, because I post that probably a few weeks, or if not a month, before we actually talk about it. All of these links are on our webpage at orphanedentertainment.com. So let's go ahead and listen to a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we are going to discuss 1929's Big News. Another five-minute mystery. Martha, I have something to ask you. Darling, it's been such a lovely afternoon here on the mountain. Martha, I I want a divorce. Divorce? Yes. There is someone else. I need my freedom. No. I won't give it to you. I thought that would be your answer, my dear. Then why did you ask me? Because, Martha, I did not want to kill you. Howard? Yes, Martha. I've got to be rid of you. That's why I brought you to the mountain. There is a precipice over there. It is a long fall, my dear. I might as well begin with a description of the events leading up to your wife's falling over the precipice. As you wish, Sergeant. It was such a lovely afternoon that Martha, my wife, and I decided to come up here to the mountain. We brought some lunch with us and planned to make a day of it. About what time was that, sir? I should say it was about three o'clock. Mm, I see. Uh, would you go on, please? About four o'clock, it began to thunder. Very shortly thereafter, lightning and rain started. Did you find shelter? Yes. We were rather fortunate to find a cave about a hundred yards from here on the west side of the mountain. What time uh, did it stop raining? About uh, an hour later, Sergeant. What did you do then? This is quite a lot of questioning, Sergeant. Is it all necessary? Yes, I'm afraid it is. I 
I hope you don't object. We're almost through. No, not if it is necessary. Well, uh, to continue. We left the cave and continued to the crest of the mountain. As we got to the top, my wife called my attention to a rainbow, which had suddenly appeared to the west behind the sun. And that was about five o'clock? Yes. Well, when Martha saw the rainbow, she suggested, as a sort of joke, that we try to follow to the end of the rainbow. You know the pot of gold at the rainbow's end? Yes, of course. Uh. Uh, what happened after she suggested it? I laughed and tried to dissuade Martha from the idea, but she began running down the incline and waving for me to follow her. Did you? No, I shouted for her to turn back, but she was running downhill too quickly to stop. Suddenly, she slipped on some loose rock and fell down. She turned over and over and rolled right off the precipice. It was horrible. There was no way you could have helped her? Of course not. Are you insinuating... No, my mountain-climbing friend, I'm merely saying that I don't believe your story. It's a lie. How does the state policeman know that Howard lied in the story of how his wife met her death? In just a moment, we'll know, but first... Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. And now, back to our story. Howard, your story contained one rather obvious flaw which condemns it as a lie. You told me just a few minutes ago that after the storm cleared, you and your wife discovered a rainbow to the west, behind the sun, which, my friend, is an impossibility. A rainbow is always formed opposite the sun by the reflection of its rays. Code film directed by Gregory LaCava, and whose top build stars are Robert Armstrong and Carol Lombard, though Miss Lombard has very little to do with most of the film. The director, Gregory LaCava, began work as an animator. His big break came in 1915 when William Randolph Hearst decided to create an animation studio to promote the comic strips that were printed in his newspapers that could run along his newsreel films. He created International Film Service, which was under his Hearst Vitagraph News Pictorial Company, and he hired LaCava to run it. He enjoyed an almost unlimited budget for several years, as Hearst was more than willing to dump money into a studio. But however, in July of 1918, Hearst's bankers finally caught up, and uh, the International Film Service was shut down. 
By 1922, LaCava had become a live-action director of two real comedies, eventually working his way up to feature films in the silent era. But it is for his work in sound films of the 30s, especially comedies, including My Man Godfrey and Stage Door, which earned him nominations for Academy Award for Best Director. Star Robert Armstrong studied law before dropping his studies to manage his uncle's touring companies. In his spare time, he liked to write plays, which led him to actually appear in one of them when it was produced. He served in World War I and then found a brief home on the British stage. Armstrong's screen career began in 1927 when he appeared in Pathé's silent drama, The Main Event. He was a prolific actor from that point on, particularly in the late 20s and early 30s. He made nine movies in 1928 alone, and he'd appear in over 125 films up through 1964. He may be best known for starring as director Carl Denham in 1933's King Kong and again in the sequel Son of Kong, released later the same year. And he was the man who utters the famous quote at the end of the first film. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Later in 1949, Armstrong would play another Carl Denham-like character, Max O'Hara, in Mighty Joe Young, another stop-motion animation giant gorilla film. He continued to work through the 50s and into the early 60s before retiring. He made many television appearances, even starring as Sheriff Andy Anderson in, 19, in 1957 through 1959 on the syndicated Western-themed television series State Trooper. And he made several guest appearances on the long-running Perry Mason series. And he's one of 11 actors who, in the show's nine-year run, hit the quote-unquote Perry Mason trifecta, playing victim, defendant, and murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and we've talked about Carol Lombard once if not twice i think or oh my gosh more no, at least twice <laughs> at least twice uh, here on orphan entertainment so i'm not going to bore anybody with any of those you can just go back and find her other films and our discussions there and you can learn a little bit more about carol but that's all the backstory that's all the little trivia and stuff that i had not a whole lot to go with this one the rest of the actors in the film are just you know these typical typical studio character actors i didn't see anyone no one really popped up of note with any interesting uh, information though i'm willing to be wrong if anyone else knows <laughs> anything it's it's highly possible i just did not dig deep enough so yeah i think we're ready to start talking about big news from 1929 you ready lydia i'm ready <laughs> all right well the film opens in a city newspaper office on a very rainy day one of the bosses is in and looking around the newsroom when he finds reporter Steve Banks asleep in the other boss's office. What a way to start a day. Banks? Now let me tell you something else. If you don't have some blankets and a pillow put in this office, I want to quit working here. Banks, you're a disgrace to the newspaper profession. It isn't a profession. It's a game. Now run along, because I want to play with you. The same thing after every payday, drunk and disorderly. You know, Hessel, you're not really as bad as you seem. Nobody could be that bad. Here, have a little drink. It might put new life in an old body. That'll cost you your job. Boy. The boss, Hensel, tells Banks that this is the last time he's going to see him fired. And Banks doesn't seem too concerned at the prospect. Listen, Hensel, there are 1,790 newspapers in the United States. 
And I've only worked on 16 of them. Tomorrow, you'll be free to connect with your 17th. Yeah? Well, if the old man does fire me, I promise to come in your office and kiss you goodbye. Uh, some more staff come in, and each one makes a point of saying how much it's raining. Banks drops a dime in an empty milk bottle and tells the elevator operator to get it filled with coffee. But make sure he doesn't get any rain in it. <laughs> a while later, while he's having his bottle of coffee, another man comes in and asks if Banks knows anything about a big drug bust. The man read about it in another paper, in a story written by Banks' wife. <laughs> Rose Peretti, queen of the underworld, stood off the police department last night while she demolished the insides of her apartment at 341 1st Street. The arresting officer, Thomas O'Ryan, declared she was under the influence of narcotics. Hmm, how cute. Where were you while all this was going on? I'm trying to remember. Let me see, I remember hearing that they were going to raid the Peretti gal's apartment. And? So I went to Joe Reno's speakeasy. That geography don't make sense. Well, you see, I had a sneaking hunch that Reno knows more about this narcotic ring than his telly. I remember having about four drinks of Reno's bar varnish, and I remember asking a lot of questions. Then I landed outside on my ear. What's Reno got to do with this Peretti case? Now, that's what I didn't find out. Well, meanwhile, Hensel is in his office taking a, ca- taking a call from a Mr. Reno. Uh, this happens to be the owner of the speakeasy that Banks just got thrown out of the night before. Reno also owns a restaurant, and he tells Hensel that he is thinking of taking his restaurant's advertising out of this paper on account of Banks' drunken behavior. Hensel assures Reno that Banks will be fired. Banks, meanwhile, has phoned the district attorney to see what kind of information he might know about this whole drug bust and everything that's going on. And he has him pretty riled up. After asking about the recent narcotic deaths and suggesting that the DA is hiding something. The DA apparently threatens to have Banks fired, so Banks tells him that he's a little too late. There's several people ahead of the line on that. (laughs) Hansel shows up and tries to do just that, but Banks' editor O'Neill has his back and forces Hansel out of the office. The paper's advice columnist, Vera, walks in and is almost immediately insulted by Banks. (laughs) Repeatedly. Uh, She lets it slide because she knows that there is something potentially worse waiting for him out in the hall. (laughs) It's his wife, Margaret. He goes out to talk to her, and Vera wasn't wrong. (laughs) Good morning, dear. Well. Oh, is it raining outside? See, you and I are going to have a little talk. Why, certainly, dear. Shall we go inside? I can tell you all I've got to say right here. Gee, that's a swell hat you've got on there. Is that a new one? Steve, let's come to the point. Why, what's the matter, dear? What have I done? Where were you last night? Where was I last night? I, uh, well, didn't you get my message? What message? Well, my message. I I told Hoffman to call you and... Wait a minute, I'll get that guy out here. Never mind, I know where you were. You and Deke Thomas were probably having a drinking bout somewhere. Well, yes, we did have a couple. Where did drinking get him? There isn't a newspaper in this town that'll hire him back. And you're getting just like him. Well, now, Dick and I were working. We were working on on that Peretti case. And by the way, dear, that was a swell story you had in the Morning Herald. So you were working on the Peretti case, eh? Uh Uh-huh. Well, you weren't with the raiding party. You weren't at the jail when they brought her in. 
You must have covered that case by remote control. Well, now, there's more to that case than appears on the surface. I did like the, the sort of the, um, the setup for the kind of a joke, I guess. Everyone that walks in the room mentions how much it's raining. Oh, my gosh, it's raining. Oh, my gosh, it's raining. And Banks is like, could you quit telling? Oh, don't tell me it's raining. So when he goes out to talk to his wife, oh, dear, is um, it raining? Is it raining? <laughs> <laughs> well, despite Banks trying to pass off some sort of excuse as to where he was the night before, uh, Margie has had enough. And she tells him that she wants a divorce. Let's see. Oh, the other big boss, uh, Addison, shows up from the elevator there in the lobby. And... Uh, doesn't quite read the room right. <laughs> well, good morning, good morning. Well, I don't suppose you young married people see enough of each other evenings, but you have to be spooling in dark hallways in the morning. I think it's probably worth mentioning that she says some things about, you know, not only was he out all night, but then, uh, you know, she's, he says, you know, I've got some great ideas. And she says, yeah, you get all your ideas out of a bottle. So mm-hmm. not only has it been two years since they've probably had dinner together, which she makes it sound like she had a his favorite liver and onions waiting right. for him at home. But if he's if he's not home, he's drunk, and he's probably like drunk even if he is at home. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is a little bit of the um, little bit of the pre code sneaking in here. Is you've got a, a a very empowered woman, in really in a way. I mean, she's the one that's like saying, "No, this isn't working. I want a divorce. Uh, you're a you're a slob. You're a drunk. You you don't come home." Yeah. So I just I find that both refreshing and um for the, for the time anyway. <laughs> yeah. and it's a little surprising <laughs> yeah it won't be too many years later when the the typical uh movie and television housewife is just perfectly happy to make the liver and onions and if the husband doesn't show up well he was working hard mm-hmm. banks is uh taking everything pretty well admitting that he has kind of had this coming and he even offers up a name of a good lawyer and he helps choose a, a grounds for divorce. They both decide it should be <laughs> mental cruelty. <laughs> Margie tells him that he could be a great reporter if he just stopped drinking. You know, she was talking with a doctor just the other day that told her that a person can get even more stimulation out of a glass of tea. And then Banks makes a very racially insensitive remark about the Chinese. <laughs> this is a film of its time. <laughs> Margie leaves as Addison's secretary comes out and tells Banks that Addison wants to see him. Apparently, Hensel has been in talking to him, and Addison seems pretty sore about something. Banks goes into Addison's office and then uh, waits for Addison, who's adjusting a small gas heater that he's using in the room. Banks notices that Addison left his mic- the microphone of his dictaphone off the hook, so he hangs it up, which stops the machine. Well done. Just fair. I beg your pardon? Accept it. Say, you'll have to talk louder. So much noise in here. Where were you last night? I'll bite. Where was I? What? Don't ask riddles. You bet you're on the griddle. You got drunk. You went to Reno's cafe. You insulted all of my young man. You're too afraid to drink when he asked you to leave. Say, what kind of a name you trying to give this paper? You trying to ruin our circulation? You want me to answer those all at once, or do you want separate answers? What's that? Oh, what difference does it make? I'm sick of this bum racket anyhow. It isn't even a racket. It's a disease that gets into your blood and rings out like an old mop. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was some hard of hearing, and it's oh, yes. a little bit of scattered brain as well. <laughs> like he's not always paying attention either, mm-hmm. uh, which leads to some pretty funny lines and something about being stuck in the middle. What? Of course you're on the griddle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
The two have a real shout-out, and eventually Banks is thrown out of the op- is thrown out of the office and fired. I like this little bit where they're all expecting it. <laughs> and, and so everybody out in the newsroom is kind of listening and keeping score. <laughs> <laughs> O'Neill laments that this is the third time this month that this has happened. And he goes to try to smooth things over again. <laughs> well, Banks does the I'm out of here banter with the office, dropping a couple more insults on Vera. But she manages to lob a few back as well. My favorite is as Banks is leaving, he proclaims, it's going to be a long time before you see a newspaper man like me in this room, to which Vera replies, I hope that's true. <laughs> I have to admit that Vera, while she is the uh, focus of many barbs from ev- several people in this film, she does manage to hold her own. She, uh, she can throw them back. And, and you like her. She's really good-natured about it. You know, she's not replying offense offendedly or offensively but she also is you know she can take it but she can dish it out exactly just as banks is on his way out in the hall his drinking buddy deke shows up banks confesses that he has a lot of romantic and professional problems so deke figures that if he's on the outs with both there's nothing to get in the way of their drinking and i should mention too that deke is Obviously, if he was drinking last night, he hasn't stopped. (laughs) He may not have stopped in several years. No, no, he can barely stand up on his own, I think. (laughs) While Banks understands Margie, he is really annoyed at Addison. Banks is sure he was on the verge of having Reno and his mob exposed, and a fat story to go along with it. Deke suggests returning to the scene of last night's altercations to see what might stir up. Cut to Reno's. And we have Reno's men are wondering what Reno is going to do about Banks. Well, what are you going to do about this guy, Banks? I'm telling you, he's nothing to worry about. He's just a harmless drunk. He's smarter than you think he is. He's not so smart. I had him canned this morning. You can't shut that guy up by canning him. What good's a newspaper man without a newspaper? We got to think of ourselves, Joe. You ain't the only one in this racket. I'll handle this. You ain't going to let him come in here again, are you? Why not? He amuses me. That's where you fellows are all wrong. As my dear old grandmother used to say to me, you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Yeah? You take my tip and you'll use a fly swatter. The men aren't really convinced, and one makes the point that if that Peretti girl talks, they'll all be taking their meals through iron bars. I think the Peretti girl, that's the first time I think I've mentioned it, but I think she was, that was the apartment that the bus took took place yeah they mentioned her a couple of times i think i think you heard about her in the clip that i played earlier Mm -hmm. that that was the first time that anyone other than in reference to the article that anyone mentions her so reno leaves for another meeting just as banks and deke come in the thugs try to get a rise out of banks and deke and the two groups begin (laughs) throwing barbs in the other's direction as i was saying to george I never seen a newspaper guy yet that wasn't a lousy, backbiting, yellow dog at heart. So I says to him, all these newspaper guys, they're just a lot of no-good bums, with no more spine than a jackrabbit. And you couldn't get one of them to fight if you spit in his eye. As I was saying, Deke, you take the fine, upstanding type of thug that peddles dope to school children and penny candy. Well, I once knew a newspaper guy that got drunk enough to talk nasty to a real man. 
There wasn't enough left of him to cremate decently. As I was saying when you were so politely interrupted, it's a shame to hang so many innocent murderers. Rat traps would be much cheaper. Just so. You know, I very recently heard of the sad case of two benevolent and persecuted hopslingers who were punished by being put in a barrel with a skunk. Fortunately, the skunk died. He was probably bored to death by their repartee. I like that they just keep talking at each other, but they don't actually respond to each other. Yes. <laughs> Reno shows up, and Bank shares the news that he's out of the newspaper racket. Their little war is over. It's a shame. Another couple of days, and Banks would have made a criminal out of Reno. <laughs> their interaction is interesting, because Reno is like... It's very blatantly laid out there that the one's got it in for the other one. But for being such a such a criminal, Reno seems pretty relaxed about it. He's like, you know, he's not ever going to admit anything, but he's also not, you know, going on the defensive and, you know, yell, throwing the guy out of his bar or anything like that. Well, Reno, for the moment anyway, seems very secure that nobody has anything any dirt mm -hmm. on him mm -hmm. and so he doesn't need to defend himself yeah, Pixar it didn't happen yeah exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> I should mention too during this whole conversation Banks is fiddling with I think is what a, a small flask with his pocket knife yes and he uses it to open it up so he can pour his drink into it I guess it's got like a, a, a like a screw bottom I thought at first I thought it was his lighter but then he poured the uh, the booze in it so I'm like okay it's some sort of small flask I guess maybe it's strong enough alcohol that you could use it for a lighter <laughs> <laughs> maybe I couldn't really tell because it had just that <laughs> small yeah, it had that small screw at the bottom that you would like normally use like a screwdriver or a coin yes, to, exactly. uh, to unscrew so he uses his, his rather large pocket knife to undo it well, Banks tells Reno that the confession he got from the Peretti girl would have cinched it. What was the name? Peretti. Rose Peretti. You know. Oh, yes. I believe I did read about that in the paper. You're not trying to connect me with that, too. You should have read the confession I got from her this morning. But I handed you a great kick. They have one last drink, and Banks leaves, dragging Deke along. I like Deke. He's, like, getting ready to take off, off his coat like he's going to go after <laughs> one of the thugs. <laughs> yeah, Banks just kind of puts the coat back on him and then sort of drags him out. The thugs want to know what Reno's going to do now, but Reno says he's sure Banks was bluffing about the confession. Outside the bar... Hey, did you notice anything funny? You mean those two bums? You see Reno's face when I mentioned that Peretti confession? Uh, who wants to look at his face? He's worried. He thinks I got a statement from the Peretti girl involving him. Well, haven't you got it? No. And I'm going to get it. I'll break a leg triumph. I'll see you later. Back inside, the thugs and Reno discuss just what they'd do if the girl did talk. Reno is sure no one can get to her as she's safely locked away in jail. And if they let her out, he'll just send her on a long trip until it all blows over. Well, the phone rings right then, and Reno gets the news that the girl was released that morning. 
Reno sends his thugs to find the girl, and he heads to talk to Addison, just in case. He also tells his goons to get Banks and use their own judgment. Back at the newsroom, Addison is being his usual hard of hearing and scattered self when Hensel tries to get him to talk to one of the big advertisers in his office. Addison could not be less interested in it. He has a paper to run. That advertiser, of course, is Reno. Hensel tries to uh, stall Reno and makes up the idea that Addison uh, wants to meet him. He's just really busy, and he'll, he'll try again in a few minutes. And in that time, they can go over some of the ad details. While Hensel is busy at the desk, Reno wanders to the window and waves his handkerchief. It took me forever to figure out what he was doing yeah, when I first saw it. I that. actually didn't catch it at all, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, I, I, I've actually rewound it a couple times to figure out. <laughs> he was like, did he throw? Did he toss? No, what? Oh, no, no. He just pulls out his handkerchief in front of the window. Out in the newsroom, Margie stops by and drops off Banks' suitcase. O'Neill fills her in on Steve's firing. Back with Reno and Hansel, Hansel gets a call that is supposedly from the press room or someone else in the, uh, in the paper. But it's from an outside line. This is apparently really odd, so Hansel leaves Reno to go over the ad copy while he goes to check on things. After he leaves, Reno makes for Addison's office across the hall, but has to wait as a messenger, a one-armed, a one-armed, Yankee, messenger, do- yeah. a one-armed Yankee Doodle whistling messenger, drops a package off at the office. In the newsroom, Margie has filled in O'Neill about what has happened between her and Banks. O'Neill thinks she made the right decision. She asks if O'Neill has any idea where Banks is, but O'Neill says that he moves too fast for him. No telling where he is. <laughs> in rushes a disheveled Steve Banks. I like this part where Margie's sitting there talking to, you know, who obviously is kind of a longtime friend. They've known him for a while. And she's, you know, asking, do you think I did the right thing? I just, I'm not sure I did the right thing. And O'Neill's saying, yeah, you did the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yes, you should you were glut- You were a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Banks here is is in there. He he is looking a little worse for wear, and he demands to see Addison. I'm pretty sure he's got at least one black eye. <laughs> yeah, he definitely looks like he's been through the gutter. Yeah. Addison comes out, and Banks forces the two of them into the office. So is that fossilized old baboon in his office? Now, don't go in there, Steve. Wait till you cool off. I want to see this baby while I'm red hot. Hey, who's doing all this yelling out here? So, you're going to yell back again, are you? Any happy return. Please. You're, uh, you're drunk. Uh, you'll think I'm drunk by the time I get through. You get into that office. So, I'm a bum reporter, am I? You can't scare me. I'm a rotten newspaper man, am I? You can't work here anymore. Who wants to work in this dump? I got a story here that's going to turn this town upside down. Ah, uh, you haven't got any story. You're drunk again. Yeah, uh, punch drunk. I met a couple of Reno's men outside. Say, you can think of more alibis than any sauce I ever met. Yeah, well, what do you think about this, doggone you? What is it? It's a confession from Rose Peretti. A confession? A confession? Where'd you get it? How, who wrote this? Where, who said it? Well, what do you know? Now, there's a story that'll make your hair curl. It involves Reno and his whole rotten gang. And it doesn't stop there, either. Addison is ecstatic, but Banks won't let him publish it unless he's rehired and with a $25 a week raise. In the other office, Reno overhears everything. Banks goes to get cleaned up, but leaves the office through the back way and not through the newsroom in case Reno's boys are still around. In the newsroom, Margie is worried since it's been so long and the shouting has stopped. O'Neill assures her that it's fine. 
been in there a long time. Do you think everything's all right? Well, they quit yelling at each other. That's something. I never saw Steve so violent. And I feel maybe that I'm responsible. Oh, he'll be all right as soon as he gets it out of his system. They're too quiet all of a sudden, it's just me. Supposing you just poked your head in the door, huh? Not me, lady. Not me. I know those birds too well to interfere in their family quarrels. <laughs> they have these fights about twice a week just to prove they're not effeminate. But they always wind up in each other's arms singing Mother McCree. <laughs> Even so, I can't help worrying about Steve. He's such a kid. You know, Margie, I think you were miscast. You should have been his mother. <laughs> to prove Just to they're prove not their masculinity. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they always end up in each other's arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hensel finally makes his way back to Reno in his office. No one in the building knows anything about anyone trying to call him. And Reno spins a tale. Say, I wonder... I don't understand. A strange thing happened. This fellow Banks is quite a practical joker, isn't he? He's worse than that. Why? Oh, no reason. I just thought perhaps he might have called you on the phone. I saw him come out of Addison's office just before you returned. Well, I can't imagine him being in there. I assure you he was fired this morning. They were having a violent argument, and Banks used a lot of cuss words. It was very threatening, but he's that way with everybody. In fact, he threatened me again when he came out of the office. Back in the newsroom, a police officer who happened to be walking past the building comes in, and he complains that someone tossed a, something from the building. He wants to know who the Joker is that threw a knife out the window. Margie recognizes that knife. It's Banks's knife. Addison's secretary comes back from fetching Addison's lunch, and she opens the office door after not getting an answer from knocking. She screams, and the officer and O'Neill uh, go into the office, but quickly rush out and tell everyone to open the doors and windows. The office is filled with gas, and Addison is dead. After a little investigation, the gas line is discovered to have been cut, most likely with a knife. The officer calls headquarters and tells the boys to find Steve Banks. He is wanted for murder. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> You're waiting That's on me. I missed my cue. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I kind of wondered. I thought maybe there might be one there. And believe it or not, I know we felt, I feel like we really rushed through this, and that's just kind of the way this plot kind of runs. But we are, it's a not a long film, and we've only got like, it's less than 20 minutes to go at this mm-hmm. point. So I'm not going to give it away. If you want to find out what happened to Mr. Banks, and what, or hap, I guess I should say, if you want to know what happened to Mr. Addison, and whether or not, yeah. <laughs> and who did it. Well, and Mr. Banks, too, I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Looks like he's just committed murder. Yes. Uh, which, of course, we know he didn't do. We and we think we're he didn't. pretty sure Mr. <laughs> Reno was involved. That's one of the things about this movie is it's a very straightforward movie. There's not a whole yes. lot of mystery to it. Yeah, it's actually apparently uh, based on a stage play. Oh, interesting. Which makes a little bit of sense, and you could see where that would work, because it's very limited sets. Effectively, it's mm-hmm. like the newsroom. It's a three-act. It's very much a yeah. three-act play kind of setup. Yeah, very much. And it is, like you said, very straightforward. I mean, it is an A to B, B to C, and uh, there's not much deviation there. No. 
I think the only time it gets a little complicated is actually in this last 20 minutes. <laughs> and fortunately, we have someone that kind of explains everything for us. It was an interesting and an okay film. I, we both thought we should find something a little heavier after the last couple of films that we've covered have been very light in content. Mm-hmm. And we thought this one, by the description, would be a little heavier, a little bit more dramatic. We were wrong. <laughs> I was going to say, ironically, <laughs> this is probably some of the fluffiest film we've seen in a, a while, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is almost like a non-entity. This is really filler film. <laughs> There's not a lot of plot to it. I mean, the, the majority of the film is quippy dialogue. And, and even that is not very gripping <laughs> no um it, it you know it's a i think it i think it struggles because there's not a lot of action in it at all in fact any mm. action that happens happens off screen right so you don't have you know we know that steve was in a tussle with some of reno's men but we don't see the tussle you know right. we all of the things that would typically be interesting of course they can't show anything like that probably they can't show him actually drinking on well i guess they do show him actually drinking on screen Um, yeah no it's this is definitely (laughs) pre-code so they could show him drinking i think it just comes down to maybe it was a a financial thing Mm. that if you you can't show him that night before at the speakeasy because then that would mean extra people Mm -hmm. well extras you'd have to hire yeah and even just the like the interview with peretti would have made it a little more interesting but yeah, you never – we never see the Peretti dry. girl. No, never. And it's almost like they they just – they just it was so slim on content. Even even the banter in the dialogue is there's, – there's nothing to pull you into the story. It's just banter. It doesn't mm-hmm. really have anything to do with the story. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, – Which is – it's that's where it's, it's kind of funny for me because – I, I looked 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 at this film. I read the synopsis. I'm like, okay, and I just kind of clicked into it a little in a few places. And I I heard some of the banter, like in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, there's some snappy dialogue in here. Mm-hmm. If the rest of the film is like this, this should be okay. This should be interesting. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that that was literally all there really is to it. I think, yeah, I think this is the first movie that I've seen where there's more banter than there is plot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's kind of a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> And it's it's kind of one of those of two halves. The, the banter and the interplay between the newsroom uh, people, mm-hmm. uh, the workers, mm-hmm. uh, is all p- really pretty good mm-hmm. and very believable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like a workplace. Yes. It's, it's one of those things that's kind of like, if this was a television series, I'd watch this yeah, television exactly. series. Because I know I'm going to get interested in these characters yes. and have fun with them. This is like Cheers or something <laughs> yeah. like that, you know? Or uh, what was the uh, news radio? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, to, to keep it yeah. to keep it with the news, it was like news radio. You know, so you got these really interesting characters. You have them kind of going back and forth in the banter. Like, oh, okay, that's interesting, but that has nothing to do with anything else no. that's going on. But, and it, that's funny. It's interesting to think of it that way. It's almost like all the stories that I'm interested in are not related to this movie so i'm really interested in in steve and marge and their relationship i'm interested in knowing how two newspaper people got together uh i'm i'm interested in knowing you know how all all of the editors addison and o'neill and all of those guys kind of how they interact and obviously like o'neill stands up to um 
Oh, the pencil. Pencil, yeah. And says, you know, oh, you're not going to elbow in on my territory again. So you have this these really developed relationships in a story that has almost no story. Mm-hmm. It's it's a byline in the whole story is just the byline, and actually the news article is never shown in the movie. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're told how terrible and evil Reno is, but we don't see. But him. we never yeah. we never see it. We don't. We're, we have to we have to take Steve Banks's word well, for the it. The worst thing he does is listens behind a door or waves <laughs> yeah. his hanky out a window. Yes. So, yeah. So and he does uh, tell some fibs. Does he? Yeah. I well, suppose he does. Yes. Banks was here, and he used many. Curse words. <laughs> but the most, like, interesting, whoa, most interesting thing he says is, I'm going to miss you a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know? And the, that little dialogue between Banks and Reno in the in the bar, in the speakeasy, right. you know, there, you can tell their relationship is really interesting, but you, but it doesn't have anything to do with the story. No. So, <laughs> it's like, oh, what a horrible disappointment because there's so much here that I'm interested in and none of it happens in the film. Yeah, I would like to see more with like you were saying with like the O'Neill character because he, he appears to be this good confidant and friend. Yeah, to he the, seems awesome. The, to the Banks <laughs> couple. I mean, he's actually as much as he's running around and he's he's trying to run a newspaper and everything. When Margie actually wants to talk, he's actually sitting down and talking yes, to Margie. Exactly. You know, he, he's taking time out of his and day. He stands like, up okay. for his employees. And uh, yeah. yeah, so these are important people to him. Yes. But it's kind of like, well, why? I want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. They put a lot of thought into how the characters are interacting. Not a lot of thought into what happens to the characters. Right. <laughs> it's so backwards to what we're used to, I think. <laughs> Usually yes. it's, oh, the story would have been great if only they'd had some character development. In this case, it's, oh, if only they had some plot to their character development. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it is interesting. There are a couple of things in it that, you know, kind of grabbed me early on. Like the first shot or two, they actually do some panning. And following uh, Hensel around the office, and I was surprised. It actually surprised me. It kind of shook me a little bit because this is an era where you don't see a lot of panning. And it Mm -hmm. follows Hensel walking around the office. And I thought this had to be an innovation in 1933 or 1929. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that that this is an – I don't know that I've ever seen – there must be other movies where they pan this early but it's it's also a little choppy, so you really notice it. But it's like they didn't yes. quite know what they were doing. So I was going to say there's a there's one moment where the camera has moved its way to the like left of the screen, mm-hmm. following someone like probably Hansel or whatever, and then it's like somewhere there's a note that says, and someone comes through the door on the right, and the camera makes this real sudden. It's like yeah. so. It's a single camera <laughs> shot, and that camera makes a real sudden dive to the right. Like, oh yeah, I got to get that other person. But, the timing wasn't quite right. Yes. So there's like a there's like a half beat before anyone actually comes through the door. Yes. So you're just kind of sitting there going, okay. Exactly. So I had you know so I had a moment like right then where I thought this may this is I wonder if this is new technology in this era. I wonder if the idea of moving the camera in the shot. I I have to think it is. It's. And so I'm fascinated. Now I kind of want to find out. So anybody listening, if you have details on this, please let me know. Because <laughs> it's yeah. something I thought of early on. Well, I don't know if it was innovative for this film or anything, but it was probably something a little newer. Because I, I yes. think because of the size and the, the 
difficulty that you would have in moving a camera mm-hmm. of this of this time. Yes. It was typically you put the camera in the room, you film the whole room, and you just try to get everybody in the shot. I hadn't thought of it until you said that, but there probably wasn't a swivel on the camera. So they would have probably had to have moved the whole camera, turned the whole camera. Took a couple guys probably on yeah. either side. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. So, yeah, that's it's, it's interesting. I lo- yeah. But it's kind of funny, like, grabbing little things like this. Everybody knows the Citizen Kane bit where, you know, they're shooting from floor level and it's so innovative and new. But mm-hmm. little things like this when you're watching something from 1929 and you take a pan for granted. And then kind of go, yeah. oh, wait a minute. Maybe maybe I shouldn't. And there's other things about this film that I really kind of appreciated. And it, it seemed like it was a, an amazing amount of effort for something that doesn't really add up to a whole lot. Like, I mean, when you open up in, on this newsroom, you can see outside, it's first of raining. all, that it's raining yes, terribly hard. Yes, I thought hard. that too. I and noticed everyone, that. Yeah, and everyone comes in and they're soaking wet and they're complaining about the rain and everything. And it's really the only reason that's there is so you can have Steve go out and talk to his wife and say, <laughs> oh, is it raining? Yeah. I mean, it's a giant setup for this. So he can have this little bit of small talk mm-hmm. with his wife when he knows when he can definitely tell that something's wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, that's an interesting little piece to drop in this film that doesn't need to be there because it doesn't play into the rest of the story anywhere it's just this little bit again like you said it's this little bit of character yeah (laughs) it it adds to all the characters yeah the rain itself is practically a character but then yeah you're right it never comes back in later in the day which is disappointing i think yeah (laughs) and there's an additional complications that they work into the script with the idea of um um Oh, how Banks even introduces his his knife. Hey, where's my pocket knife? And, oh, I gave it back to you. Oh, there it is. It's in his pocket. So, like, okay, that's kind of like Chekhov's knife now. Okay, <laughs> we've seen that in the first act. We, we need to see it in the third act. You know? <laughs> and then how it goes about and uh, how it gets into Reno's hands. And then, mm-hmm. of course, uh, how it's used later that we now have this cut gas line. Well, wait, it was cut with a knife. A knife? You know, Which the knife that was thrown out of this window they was didn't like actually need the knife there. They could have just said he was the last guy in the room. It's that basic. Right. Yeah, it's just it, it adds all these little bits I, of complications yeah. or whatever. They go through a lot of effort. Well and, I and guess then they, they have to they have to film this yeah, too. They have yes. to film and show uh Banks fiddling with his knife in the bar. Which and is then, again an interesting shot. You don't get a whole right. lot of tight shots like that. And then nonchalantly, and then you know, forgetting it on the bar, and and Reno finding it is like that adds complications mm-hmm. to your filming, and they put that in there for things that didn't really need to be there. Mm-hmm. But I appreciated that they did, and I think they just could have, maybe it could have been a done a little better or been a little bit more integral to the plot. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it's curious. There's a. It's just. <laughs> it's it's a curious little piece of film. <laughs> it really it really is. And I, yes, I agree. <laughs> and that's all there is to say about it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. There isn't. Strangely, much like the movie, there's not a lot to talk it's about. Really not. There's not it's, a lot of substance in the film, and there's not a lot to talk about it afterwards. Exactly. We're we're going through the plot, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, they're going to think that I wasn't here for this recording because I don't have anything to add. It's all so yeah. straightforward and cut and dried that there 
there's kind of not a lot that happens <laughs> in between <laughs> what he's explaining. So, um, so yeah, if you thought it was a, a little bit of a, a dry explanation, it's because it was a little bit of a dry movie. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to say about it, but I haven't, and I just can't think of it. <laughs> for for having actors that went on to do so much, it's it's so funny because, again, you know, you can see why some of these guys got picked up and and carried on with their careers. But yeah. this this movie was the script probably was not worthy of them. Robert Armstrong, he apparently just went and did you know, anything they threw at him. Like they said, this is one in like eight films or something he did in the year. <laughs> so I guess he, he, he wanted to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, but, but then he, it turned out that he was a good actor. It turned out obviously Carol Lombard, everybody knows uh, even right. Tom Kennedy, the guy that plays officer Ryan, he comes back in. Uh, the guy has a, a long list of things that he did. Uh, 388 credits. That's just massive. That's amazing. It's yeah. huge. And he's in, uh, I saw a couple of things. I thought, I've seen that. I've seen that. I couldn't place him. I wouldn't have remembered. I, you know, I didn't remember he was in him. He may have seemed a little familiar to me. But um, so you've got people in here that went on to have really healthy careers. And I, I suppose they were picked up because of their acting and not because of the script. <laughs> Right, yeah. I did get a kick out of the cop's character. Uh, just the fact that, he, for for once, the uh, the cop wasn't the Irishman yes, in the film. It, it, the dialogue is witty. There's humor in it. There's just no plot. In fact, there there's there's a line where he was upset because that when they uh, they wrote his name in the other paper, they they called him O Ryan. And his name's just Ryan. <laughs> it's just, just Ryan. What's to make sure they get it right? R Y A N. <laughs> I thought that was uh, that was really interesting. Again, mm -hmm. that's just it was almost like someone was like they were playing on the tropes that hadn't even been laid down yet. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose they. You know, we always say uh, stereotypes come from somewhere. Whether they're accurate or not, they come from somewhere. And, yeah. you know, it's an Irish cop has been around for probably since the beginning of cops in America. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> but this is still pretty early in the in, in film for the for the Irish cop thing. And <laughs> it's like maybe maybe by now they had been a lot of Irish cops. And so the director is like going, you know what? You're not Irish. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make you not Irish just to be weird. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there was so much of that in, in just the little nuances. But then, yeah. But then, yeah. It, you know, you're you're given a tour of a plot. You're not actually given a plot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, good. that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I guess we're ready to put some ratings on it. Yes, I think we are. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking earlier, if, if I rated films based on how eager I was to rewatch it to do my notes. Uh, this film would maybe get a one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, but there are a few things in it that kind of shine, uh, that makes me be willing to go as high as a two, but that's as most as you're going to get out of me. For example, 
uh, just like some of the stuff we were talking about, just some of the good uh, the dialogue and the character interplay was entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know, even if the rest of the film, it was like the 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 bright spot in an otherwise kind of dark room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like the one light bulb hanging in a dark room. I, yeah, it's funny. I I, I kind of didn't mention this a minute ago, but I was thinking about it while we were talking about Vera. I was a little disappointed that that Margaret didn't have more to do. Um, you know, and I suppose I'm too used to the Nick and Nora films where Nora's so involved, you know, yeah. and you have this great pair that are, you know, playing off each other so well. But yeah, and both reporters. But and then I mean, but then you had Vera's character. It's almost like if you had taken Vera and Margaret and smushed them into one person, you would have had this dynamite character. You know, but, um, but uh, sorry, I kind of, I didn't mean to go off on a rehash of a rabbit trail. I'm with you. No, it's okay. Cause it just, it just occurred to me that we're talking about all these great characters and like here's the greatest character is like laid at her feet and done nothing with. Mm -hmm. She's a reporter, apparently a damn good reporter. She's the one that had this. In the first, yeah. In the first five minutes of the movie, she scooped her husband. Exactly. And. We never get to see her be a reporter. Yeah, exactly. Or do anything. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, so I'm I'm with you on. I think the two, a two is the highest I could go. Um, yeah. But I there is I think a strangely hidden value to this movie, um, and and if I were going to tell somebody to watch it, it would be for a very specific reason. If they were acting or learning acting this is actually not a bad movie to watch for understated acting where mm. it a lot of the time you know you have you have actors that have kind of wooden interactions and this is it's snappy it's quick you don't have over you don't have overt eye contact just for the purpose of eye contact like you mentioned earlier the office feels like a real office environment and a lot of that has to do with how they react to one another so if you were if i were telling my class you know for example uh, no i don't teach a class guys don't get excited Uh, (laughs) (laughs) if i had a class and i were teaching them how to act this is not a bad resource to look at okay so how do we how do we act in such a way that it doesn't look like we're acting right um because it's a great example of an ensemble casting Mm -hmm. and if and a workplace uh setting Mm -hmm. because the entire time even when most of these reporters or or whatever they are in the background (laughs) aren't doing anything integral you know they're not talking to anybody Mm -hmm. they're back there busy they are busy no no one's just sitting there like pretending to read something yeah. or or type. I mean they're they're hustling back and forth, they're passing papers, mm-hmm. uh, they're going in and out of the room. Mm-hmm. You don't have so, just a still backdrop. And when exactly. you got Reno and Steve and they're they're haranguing each other in the bar, you know, they're not they're not delivering lines and then waiting for the badum ching, you know. They right. it just goes back and forth really kind of almost casually but as a real relationship 
as a real conversation would. And you've got, it's funny because I had noticed it earlier when they're doing that whole bit, the one guy whose name I can't remember, another guy whose name I can't remember, Deke, he starts, Deke. Deke stands up and starts taking his jacket off before the dialogue is done beforehand. And, mm-hmm. and as silly as that sounds, as much as it seems like, well, duh, yeah, he should. There's so many movies of this era where they don't. So it does flow really well for what it's given. The dialogue yeah. and the acting flow very well. It's just a huge disappointment of a story, I think. Yeah, yeah. that, that moment with Deke, you know, uh, <laughs> Banks is on his way out. And Deke, yeah, like I said, he was taking his jacket halfway off mm-hmm. and like he's getting ready to go for a route. So it's like, I don't know what's been going on back there. I think Deke was in his own little world. <laughs> he's back there he drinking w- away. Yeah, exactly. Well, they and get he out, was like yeah. working himself up. It's like, all right, after this drink, I'm going to punch this guy yeah, out. Rito you know, gets, he's thinking in his own head. He yeah. says, let's get out a bottle of the best for him. And he takes the bottle and goes. And then the next time you really <laughs> notice him, he's in the back starting to get up and take his jacket off. Uh, but so, you know, it's not it's not that the film is without value. It's not the worst movie we've ever. Well, it may be. No, it's not the worst movie we've ever seen. No. Definitely not. But the the unique character, the unique yeah. attribute of it is not the story. <laughs> right. Yeah, it might be. It's not the worst film we've ever seen, but it may be one of the most inconsequential. Yes, that is very <laughs> accurate. If you have to watch a movie, probably don't make it this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you need to watch a movie to change your life, don't watch this one. It's not going to be right. this one. This movie will not change your life. <laughs> no, I could definitely take all the characters in this film and come up with a much better story in to go along with them. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, which is oh, what, so as sad. soon as you when you when you said take Margie and Vera and smush them together, it's like oh, wouldn't it have been cool oh. if like Margie was like saddled with the advice columnist job, oh, but she wanted to do so more, great. and she's the one that went out and, you know, figured out oh. the stuff. Get, you could almost get rid of Banks, you know? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just follow her. <laughs> well, he'd be a good sort of, you know, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn mash together where you've got the guy that he's out there drinking make all the time, him and the, should be a yeah, good but make him the tagalon. She's make her the big, the one that's doing the investigation, and she's dragging her husband, who's always been kind of proven himself to be a little bit of a drunk, and now suddenly he has to kind of like step up to the line a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, we're writing a better story. We already, yeah. yeah. Like you said, it's not hard to do. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's actually really not hard to do. No. <laughs> so, for those of you that would like to be submitting your scripts, you can send those. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll be reviewing yeah. them next month. <laughs> yeah, well, it, if you're interested in, in being in the first orphan entertainment produced film, <laughs> seen headshots Send your and uh, to PO box. Yeah. <laughs> no, you and I will write the script. We, we're going to need a cast. So that's what I'm thinking. Send your headshots. <laughs> Yeah, as always, and uh, maybe in particular this film, it was more fun to talk about than to watch. <laughs> it was shorter to talk about than to watch, that's for sure. <laughs> we did. We f- we finished up discussing it in a shorter t- run time than the film. That is a, a change-up for sure. <laughs> but yes, it was fun. Lydia, thank you very much for sitting through this not-so-great film and discussing it with me. <laughs> Well, the discussing part of it is always the most fun, and even Absolutely. more so in this case. <laughs> yes. 
But that's going to do it, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back in another month to have uh, another film. And, you know, not all the ones we... When we dig through the rough, we don't always find diamonds. That's what happens. (laughs) Uh, But hopefully hopefully next time we'll be a little brighter. (laughs) (laughs) Until then, folks, thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.